thoughts bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again just for another night to gather together as your children. Uh, we know who we are in Christ. We're protected by you, loved by you forever and perfectly. And we are very grateful for this, Father, that we can have such security in you. And we thank you for all the provisions you give us, including your word and your Holy Spirit, and most of all, your Son out of heaven to take our place once for all. We ask that you bless this message, have your Spirit guide us, help us understand more about your grace. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, again, the difficult passages, Grace and Works, Part 9. We're going to start this way, uh, just reviewing a question that's come up a couple times. Ask yourselves, who do you believe opened your eyes to the gospel, you or God? And, of course, a good hint is that you were born in complete darkness, if you had any doubts about the answer to that question. But what I was thinking about when I was reviewing is, you know, who do you believe opened your eyes? We can all know the right answer, in other words. I know the right answer is God. But in your heart, who do you believe opened your eyes to the gospel? Do you have a little inkling that maybe it was you, your own awareness or intelligence or wisdom? That's how arrogant we can be, and that's how subtle arrogance is. So, you know, ask yourself, not what the right answer is, but what do you believe? Who do you believe? Open your eyes to the gospel. And if you're off even that little inkling of giving yourself credit in some way, then repent and rejoice and believe differently. Think about it this way. You've all been in a really dark place at times, and I'm not speaking figuratively, I'm speaking literally now, actually. <laughs> Have you ever been in a really dark room when the power goes out in the winter? And it's so dark that if you put your hand in front of your face, you literally cannot see your hand. That dark. Picture that. And it was God who lit a match in that type of darkness that we were all in. I mean, that's what the Bible says. That's how, how lost, how dark how unable to see we were. And when what happens when you light that little match in that dark, dark room? It looks like the most beautiful, powerful light you've ever seen. And it's a little tiny flame. But that's what God had to do. If it weren't for God lighting that match, we'd have absolutely no vision of spiritual things. As we've heard, a blind man cannot see on his own. A dead man cannot walk on his own no matter how hard he tries, as if that was possible. But only all-powerful, gracious God can change those hopeless realities for a person. Only God can make a dead man come alive. Only God can make a blind person see. And that was all of us. And I hope everyone listening to my voice believes that was them at one point. I think you all know by now, man has no ability or contribution in saving himself from spiritual death. 
And yet, man is also told in the Bible to repent and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the supernatural reality of salvation. It's as though a man becomes humble enough to say, I want to repent, but I don't know how. Or I want to believe, but I don't know how. And when God sees that little bit of humility in in that person's heart, God says, here you go. The repentance, the faith, I give it to you. Now, this is me trying to describe spiritual things, supernatural things. But what more can we say that has been coming from the pulpit? It's a humble state of the heart that comes upon a man and he can now say, okay, Lord, you know, what do you want? Like, I'm done, right? I'm done with my self-love. I realize what an idiot, how helpless I am. And then God gives repentance and faith. These are supernatural, soulish realities that take place between each person and the Lord. And all, I would say, slightly differently, all uniquely between each person and the Lord when they humble themselves before him. And something that stood out for me on Sunday from Sunday's message was this on the board. Salvation, while there is an element of human consideration to it, is not a rational decision, strictly speaking. And this might seem a little strange to some of you, but just think about that statement. Salvation, while there is an element of human consideration to it, is not a rational decision strictly speaking. When man starts to depend on his rationalism, he adds to and or warps the gospel. He begins to think he has a peace in it somehow when God is looking for surrender in his soul. And so man has a history of trying to earn his own salvation because he wrongly thinks that he's not a dead man spiritually. He thinks he has some of his own light in the dark room. Just like it started with the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, man trying to build his own way to heaven. And again, remember how subtle arrogance is. Like, stop and ask yourself what you believe in your heart, not what you know is the right answer. What do you believe in your heart about these things? Do you give God all the glory and all the credit, 100%? Or are you holding on to 1% of the credit? Man wants to be in control. You want to be. Your flesh wants to be in control. And he wants to rationalize God and salvation, even. So on the board regarding rationalizing God, when by self-deception... Man thinks he has some control and salvation. That's when he thinks he can put God on trial. That he, man, can set the parameters of salvation and even satisfying God. That's the pride in man. It becomes a passive-aggressive thing on the behalf of man. As we know scripturally, this couldn't be further from the truth what you see on the board. And as we heard on Sunday, man arrogantly says, you're welcome, God. 
I know how much you want it to save me. I'm just like, I'm glad I could do something for you. As opposed to being on your knees and saying, thank you so much, God, for taking me out of this hopeless situation, that dark, dark place. So it's a perspective thing. Looking at the same issues in salvation. It's a different perspective. One's obviously wrong and adds to it. One is right because it totally gives God all the glory and credit in humility. Pastor used the analogy on Sunday of teenagers whose parents have allowed them to control the situation. Just as a teenager can try to stay in control, not submitting to proper authority, but just giving the impression he's submitting, while he makes his own demands. That's man before God many times, thinking as rights, and he has his own wisdom before Almighty God. He has his own say in the matter, like, again, setting his own parameters, adjusting God's parameters a little bit because he doesn't like God's parameters, and he wants to be having some control. But again, it's simply self-deception and arrogance. On Sunday, Pastor went back to the drawing board, literally. We saw righteous authority and anti-authority. And it's a, it's a good little picture because, you know, we, we clearly are under the authority of God. I mean, <laughs> there's no comparison between man and God, right? And yet man tries to, instead of get on his knees and repent, tries to stay standing as you see on the right side of the diagram, even with his hands on his hips, with a little attitude, a little attitude. And don't we hate that attitude in teenagers, for example? No offense, Shoni. <laughs> we, we have a, a, a good one here. But you know what I mean. A lot of teenagers, that little bit of attitude, they can act polite, cordial, right? They can act respectful. They can act like they're submitting to your authority, and you can see the attitude in their expressions or in their, you know, the way they carry themselves even. It's not humility. It's arrogance. It's pride. And so what does man do to God? Same thing, right? I want to keep a little pride in the situation. I can't drop my pride. And so in salvation, you know, it's the same issue that man needs to be made aware, aware of. Man tries to position himself above the authority. He tries to leverage his position so he can feel some control. But obviously this is evil. This is equal to rebellion, especially when you're talking about the God of the universe. So the scene on the board is backwards. On the right side there, it's, it's corrupt. It's someone... Uh, going out of their place, not remembering their place. In this way, man tries to impose his arrogant views on God. Man clearly has the wrong view of authority if he thinks authority needs to beg for compliance. In fact, he's totally deceived if he thinks that's how it works. And one day he's going to find out, as will every man. You know, I just think, I was thinking today about America and our freedom over the years has made us arrogant. I mean, there's probably not a more arrogant nation in the world right now. 
prideful. And that pride that's developed in our culture over the last however many decades, let's say, carries over to spiritual things. It carries over to our impression of God or whether we need God or not. That pride is, is, is deep, in other words. We've grown up with it. And when you've grown up with it, it's hard to dig it out, right? And so, you know, even in our country, we have that battle that a lot of countries don't have because they're in more humble circumstances, maybe. Or they, if they're free, they haven't taken their freedom for granted yet, which man seems to always eventually get there. But, you know, that's the wrong view of authority. If he thinks authority needs to beg for compliance. So we've been talking about how God is holy and sovereign. Authority is designed to demand compliance. That's what true authority does, because it's true authority. It's real. God is the sovereign authority in the universe, yet man has postured himself like a typical teenager, supposing God ought to beg him for his submission. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Sorry, man, it doesn't work that way, especially not with the gospel. And again, we see it in Jesus Christ, his whole ministry, really. You know, we see his love. We see him inviting everybody in to listen. But those who were not humble, he pushed away. So it's total authority. It's true authority. It's recognizing who he is and giving him credit for that person that he is. Or it's not. You know, it's not giving him that due. So because of this false presupposition, we reviewed some principles on authority orientation on Sunday because it directly relates to sharing the proper gospel with others. On the board, we went to Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. The fact is that the Lord, the one with all the authority, as seen here, allows certain people to be in authority positions. So just remember that. Let's step back, right? The one with all authority allows certain people to be in authority positions. Even those who are unfair, he allows to be there for some kind of a reason that we'll never know sometimes. But obviously, if he has all authority, he can interrupt any current authority on the earth that he wants to. He can change people's positions if he wants to. So all authority is from God, and he allows who he wants to stay in positions, fair or unfair, to stay there. So with that perspective, things should be different, even for us as believers who try to live the spiritual life, who try to be humble in every situation. Even when treated unfairly, if we remember this, we're good. God can fire somebody, for example, anytime he wants. He can get the president out of office anytime he wants. But maybe it's some of it is for our testing, even, to have humility. And so we remain respectful and honor the authority, even as we would honor the Lord himself. The 
because he's the one that allows that person to be there. Go to Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17. Here we saw a reference to spiritual leaders and obeying spiritual leaders. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Sorry. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Why should you obey your leaders and submit to them? Because the Lord put them there. Plain, simple truth. The Lord put them there. Even if they rub you the wrong way, uh, even if you think they do things the wrong way or, you know, a way that you wouldn't prefer or choose, the Lord put them there. So obey your leaders and submit to them. On the board, 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 2, verse 13. We, we went to this on Sunday also, but I'm going to read a little, bit more of, um, a little bit more of the chapter to give us even more uh, context here. 1 Peter 2, 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. What is a bond slave? Someone who realizes they're under God's authority. In other words, we're talking about choosing here, right? Again, verse 16, act as free men, but don't use that freedom as a covering for evil, like pride, but instead choose to use it as bond slaves. What does that mean? Realize you're under his authority. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect not only to those who are gentle, good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. As we've seen and will see, the very reason God elected us or called us in verse 21, he called us to salvation for the purpose of good works, to bring him glory with our lives, to the glory of his grace. And even this suffering in verse 21 suffering in, in the image of Christ, if you will, following in his footsteps. We're called to that, and those are good works that others will see 
And in verse 15, we will silence the ignorance of foolish men. Not because we're better, because we submit to authority, even when it's unfair. They can't find wrong in us, in other words. They can't call us arrogant or prideful if we're submitting to authority, even when it's unfair. And so we silence the ignorance of even foolish men that deny God. So this is part of the good works we're called to, we're born for, we're born again for. So that starts with honoring authority and submitting to unfair authorities even to do what is right and suffer for it. This finds favor with God. Do it for the Lord. Suffer for the Lord. Submit for the Lord. If for no other reason, and you don't need another reason, right? It's the greatest reason. Submit for the Lord. Go to Colossians 3.22. Colossians 3.22. Again, these are just reminders right now about authority and its importance. It says, Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do you work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. What an amazing attitude. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So this takes faith and humility to act in this type of authority orientation. And we bring tremendous glory to God when we do this. And that's another form of our good works that we were born again for. As the sovereign of the universe, God commands us to obey all authority because he's the one who allows it to be in place, both the unjust and the just. And so it's to his glory when we obey authority. You see, we've got to remember again the big picture. And that angels are always watching us. It's to his glory when we obey authority, especially unfair authority, especially when we're treated unjustly. It's to his glory in the spiritual realm. So long as we aren't told to go against God's word by the authority, then we're told to just obey the authority. So again, God is holy and sovereign. It is that reason alone that man must submit to his gospel, period. If God is sovereign and holy, if God is the creator of heaven and earth, if God is the giver of life, it's that reason alone that man must submit to his gospel. And this is what man needs to be taught. Well, even when we're sharing the gospel. It's like there's no room for considering that God is not sovereign. You know, remember your place. Think about your place. Who are you really? Who are you to be breathing another day? You know, these are things that we can relay to unbelievers even. And say, think about it. So this is 
part of orienting to the sovereign authority of God, being humbled by His grace provision, provisions. Everything's from His grace. And this takes place at salvation through humility. And then we continue to receive His grace if we're humble. On the board, regarding authority orientation, a person who doesn't receive God's grace is arrogant, really. When you cut through the cha- you know, cut through all the garbage, a person who doesn't receive God's grace is being arrogant. The Bible is grace, for example. Your ability to read is grace. Your pastor is grace. His blogs and, and books are grace. Your whole life is grace. The fact that you can be here tonight is grace. The fact that you can even listen online is grace. I mean, do we need to go on and on? And if we reject any of these things as being from the grace of God, we're proving ourselves arrogant. You're rejecting authority in some way. And we're all guilty. We're all arrogant in some way. May we always uh, remember that. May we always be repenting from that. Because until we get out of this body, we're all going to have problems with arrogance. So may we keep repenting from it. As we just read, or as we just read, I'm sorry, all authority is God-given. If we truly believed that, we would obey without questioning. Again, back to that word believe, right? What do you believe in your heart? If we truly believe that all authority is God-given, we would obey authority without questioning. Unless, like I said, they told you to do something directly against the Word of God. If your boss tells you to go steal, you don't have to do that. We must obey God rather than men, right? But listen, other than that, our job in God's eyes is to shut our mouths and obey the authority. And that brings him tremendous glory in the invisible realm. It gives the glory to his grace. So again, why this focus on authority in this series on grace and works? Because receiving God's grace is a respect for authority issue, even in salvation. Receiving God's grace is a respect for authority issue. It includes having the proper perspective of the Lord and His sovereignty, even in the gospel. So let's go again to Ephesians chapter 1 and look at the importance of the fullness of God's grace and understanding it. We're going to read some of this again, and um, again, it's beautiful, the big picture you get as you keep reading in context, and, and the fullness of the picture you get, instead of just plucking verses out. On the board, regarding Ephesians 1 and 2, you must understand God's grace and what it includes at salvation, in Ephesians 1 through chapter 2, verse 7 before you will understand the fullness of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. God is not only just and righteous, He's holy. Too many people focus solely on certain attributes rather than His essence, His person. He is holy. Just think about that as we read this passage right now. Look at Ephesians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, 
to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Don't you just love that phrase? To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. We could read this passage a hundred times, and we still wouldn't be able to take it all in. In other words, the extent to which his grace went is unfathomable to us as human beings. Truly, it's not fully comprehensible. It involves spiritual realities too great for man to fully comprehend in this life. Yet, it is this grace that we're reading about in Ephesians 1 and its fullness that we are all invited to. God's saying, I want you to know about, I want you to understand this grace. And through the Holy Spirit, we can understand it if we're humble. The main point that man needs to understand is that salvation is totally dependent upon God's grace. Totally dependent upon God's grace. And that means a lot of things. It means what this series is about, that what God's grace produces is good works. That's part of it. It's like, are you really dependent on God's grace? Are you really, really willing to receive salvation totally by God's grace? Because if so, He's going to change you. And you're going, to be, you're going to be made new. You're going to be a new creature, a supernatural creature even. You're going to be in Christ and you're going to have this power from His grace. So He's the one in authority. He's the one and the only one with the rights of giving salvation. And that's part of understanding grace. Before we go on in Ephesians, let's visit a few reminders of this in the book of Romans. Go to Romans 2, verse 4. God is the one in authority. He's the one and only one with the rights of giving salvation. And understanding that is understanding it's all dependent upon His grace. Romans 2, 4 through 5. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Hmm. Describes a lot of people, maybe even a lot of Americans in our day and age. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? There we see again, it's actually God's grace or kindness that leads a man even to repent. 
God's grace is involved in the whole of salvation, even in man repenting and believing. And that verse is another example of it. Look at Romans 3, verse 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Notice here, before man can see clearly, before he can receive the gift of salvation by grace, he must realize he has sinned and is fallen short of the perfect glory of God. And that's grace. Realizing that you're totally fallen and dead is realizing that it totally depends on God's grace. Salvation does. And nothing at all to do with yourself, your ability. And there you have submission to authority. Salvation is totally dependent on God's grace. Romans 9 14. Go to Romans 9, 14. We're going to read a little bit longer passage here in context to see how little we have in this equation, to see how little rights we have in this equation, to see that God has all the authority in salvation. And that authority comes with His grace, comes from His grace. Look at Romans 9:14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. <laughs> There's a verse to maybe throw in your gospel presentation once in a while. It does not depend upon man who wills or man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It's up to him if he wants to have mercy on you. It's up to him if he wants to choose you. And he will if he sees something in you, like humility. But he's not going to violate his integrity just to choose everybody. It totally depends on him who he has mercy upon. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does the potter, or does not the potter, have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other or another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, Endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, 
even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Who does that depend on? Solely the Lord Almighty. It's his prerogative. It's his right to have mercy on who he wants to have mercy on and compassion on whom he'll have compassion. So there we see the sovereignty of God even in salvation. And this is all part of his grace. This is all part of realizing his grace, that we need his grace 100%, because without it, we can't be saved. Now back to Ephesians 1, go to verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Sounds like grace to me, by the way. Only God can make the dead alive, right? Verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, the, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Do you remember Matthew twenty-eight eighteen? Jesus said, all authority has been granted to me. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. All that going on in chapter 1, but you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Here it is vital that we remember where God rescues us from. A totally hopeless and useless position. Again, the roadkill analogy. If something's dead, it can't do anything. Not even point zero 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 one percent of something. Right? It can't... If it speaks, it's alive. It can't move a muscle or it's alive. So a dead person can do absolutely zero. And that's the position that God rescues us from. That's the position that unbelievers need to know they're in, that they don't think they're in. So on the board, again, regarding dead in your trespasses and sins, dead refers to spiritual death, complete separation from the light. Complete darkness. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What were we? Helpless. 
unhelpable, not able to help yourself in any way, zero. A dead creature cannot reconcile themselves to the holy God of the universe. Hmm. So again, Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You formerly walked like that, like the sons of disobedience. And there is anti-authority right there as a trait of unbelief, not submitting to Jesus as Lord. Sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, we were all in the same boat. We were all there, anti-authority, 100%, not submit to the Lord. We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And that phrase is very telling. Again, on the board, by nature, children of wrath. By nature, it's who you are, a child of wrath. Tried telling that to the sweet old lady walking across the street. But it's the truth, and pride will get in the way from accepting that truth. By nature, children of wrath, the very nature of the unsaved is unholy. That's the very nature of every man born on this earth, born in sin, unholy, living in the lusts of their flesh as opposed to the saved, who have been given a new nature. 2 Peter 1.4 This is wholly consistent with being dead in their trespasses and sins. It is God alone, by grace, who can change the very nature of a man, making a dead man come alive. I mean, I hope we appreciate the polar opposites here, and I hope we appreciate the impossibility of salvation. I know most of you do, but at the same time, it's good to relook at the perspective and, and, the, and the magnitude of the gap between God and man. It's, it's actually infinite. It actually keeps going in opposite directions because we're talking about total unholiness and total death, as if, as if there is such a thing, right? If you're dead, you're dead. Versus being alive. It's hard to even fully describe. On the board in 2 Peter 1.4, we're given a new nature. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promise, promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. There's your new nature. Not the nature of children of wrath anymore, but partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Having escaped, past tense. Again in Ephesians 2, verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 
on the board. Even when dead, he made us alive. This means that being born spiritually dead precludes any man from saving himself or contributing anything righteous to the equation. God's grace includes all aspects of salvation, including the call to repentance and saving faith. Two sides of the same coin. God's grace includes all aspects of salvation. A man can't even repent on his own. Think about that. How can a dead man do that? A man can't have faith on his own. He has to ask for it, basically. He has to be humble. And God's the only one that can give it to him and make him come alive from the dead. On his own, man cannot repent or have faith, which is, again, ironic, considering man is told to do so in the Bible. Here again enters the supernatural, because even though man is told to repent and have faith, these things are also said to be gifts granted to man by the grace of God, once he humbles himself before the Lord. Awesome. Supernatural. Learn to rejoice in the supernatural. Learn to rejoice in the things that cannot be explained naturally by man. Rejoice. Rejoice that you don't fully understand that. Because that means God has to do something. That means God's involved with supernatural power in our lives. And that way you can't rely on your own wisdom. You can't rely on explaining that even to an unbeliever. All you can, can rely on is say, this is the truth. I don't know how God does it, but he does. And all you got to do is believe. It's all in his hands. It's supernatural. It's wonderful. Again, even though man is told to repent and have faith, these things are also said to be gifts granted to man by the grace of God once he humbles himself. Learn to rejoice in the supernatural. How God does that, I have no idea. But he does do it, and he did it for each one of us who are believers. Somehow, some way, at that moment when we were ready, when we were humble, he quickened us. It's supernatural. So again, in Ephesians 2, verse 5, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here again we see the power of God's grace in our lives. You see, grace doesn't just treat us in kindness. That's kind of like half the definition, maybe. Grace doesn't just mean he's kind to us. It means he acts on our behalf. It means he does something for us that we couldn't do on our own. So he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Again on the board, surpassing is from the Greek hyperbalo, means to surpass, exceed, transcend, in context, refers to God's grace performing works in man that even believers cannot fully understand yet. 
Same word used in 2 Corinthians 3.10 and Ephesians 3.19. This thing is beyond us, in other words. It's beyond us. And that is truly wonderful. Thank God it's beyond us, or we would think we know it all. And we would get puffed up and arrogant. So remember, we're leading up to something. Again, on the board, in Ephesians 1 and 2, you must understand God's grace and what it includes at salvation. In Ephesians 1 through 2, 7, before you will understand the fullness of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. God is not only just and righteous, He's holy. Too many people focus solely on certain attributes rather than His essence, His person. Now look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Hopefully you all see this in a much more rich way now, reading it in context with the previous verses. The fullness of God's grace explained. It's like more of a capstone than it is just a standalone passage. On the board, we saw this again on Sunday. If a person doesn't understand what it means to be saved, for example, that they're saved from sin, not from hell, how will they ever fully understand this magnificent passage? They cannot. Likewise, if a person doesn't accept that salvation is totally by God's grace, he's adding to salvation and therefore rejecting God's grace way of salvation. So on the board, a person who rejects all of God's grace at salvation rejects salvation itself. Such a person is akin to the rich man in Luke 18, 18, who wanted eternal life but wanted to keep his self-life. He wanted eternal life on his own terms. He wanted to set the parameters. But the God of the universe, the God of all authority, says my grace is the only way. On the board, Luke 18, 18 and 19, a ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus knew this man wasn't interested in him, only gaining something else and gaining it on his terms. In other words, Jesus was saying, do you give me full credit for who I am? Do you realize who you're speaking to right now? Why do you call me good? Salvation comes by his grace alone. Do you realize that, man? Or are you trying to find another way up the ladder to heaven? Taking some of my grace, but not all of it. Adding in your own two cents, your own wisdom, your own ability, what you think you have. Therefore, denying my grace. Really, that's what happens when someone adds to salvation. So coming full circle to our recent studies on the board... It's impossible for God's grace to pronounce a person righteous judicially and, quote-unquote, allow them to remain in the domain of sin. That's impossible. 
Salvation is not merely a judicial issue. It's an issue of life and death, even in the here and now. God's grace, remember, acts on our behalf. It doesn't just treat us in kindness. It acts on our behalf. It rescues us. It does all the dirty work. It it has all the power. God's grace acts on our behalf. He changes us when we humble ourselves before him. He doesn't just make a declaration about our new standing in Christ. He makes us new on the spot. It's a real-life, real-time change in a person that takes place by the power of God's grace alone, to the praise of His glory alone. In other words, God's perfect grace is not in word only, but in deed. God's grace doesn't go halfway again. He doesn't just treat us in kindness and leave us up to our own abilities. He gives us perfect grace not only in word, but in deed. He takes over, in other words, when we surrender. And he does all the work. Think about it. To reject the power of God's grace to change you is to reject grace itself. It's like claiming the free ticket, but denying its power, denying his power. It's man wanting salvation on his own terms, not on the terms of the sovereign Lord God and Savior who created him. It's really what it is. It's a rejection of grace. If it's not fully acknowledging, it's by His grace alone. All of it. So again, look at Ephesians 2, verse 8. We only have five minutes left. I want to get to a couple verses. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. And grace then gives us power to live in Christ, to produce good works that he said we could produce. Where's that power come from? Grace. In verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God's grace changes everything. When someone turns to Christ, He turns their life upside down in a good way. The believer goes from being dead and impotent to being alive and capable of great divine works. Great divine works. In fact, that's the reason we're born again. He goes from being unable to being able in every way. All because God's grace has fully acted in the believer's life because that's what God's grace does. For good works on the board. When God saves a person, he creates them in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. Ephesians 2.10 Believers are born again, created as new creatures that are forevermore inclined to abide in righteousness. Why are believers forevermore inclined to abide in righteousness? Because they now have been given by grace eternal life and they've been made into or transformed whatever word you want to use they've been made into new creatures so now everything's changed and so it's easy to produce good works 
not in your own power because you now have supernatural grace. The believer, remember, now abides in a new home. He's been transported from darkness to light. He's been adopted into the family of God, the house of God. Everything's new. There could be no greater change, like no greater switch from going to being dead to alive. 100% unable to 100% able in Christ. So now nothing is impossible for the believer. So let's end today with a couple passages the Spirit took us to recently that are going to pad this idea of Ephesians 2.10, that God's grace results in fabulous power and good works in the life of a true believer. It can't not result in that because it's God's grace that's on the scene. So go first in your Bibles to John 14, verse 11. We're just going to read a couple passages in John which really give us the same principle. And as we read these passages, I want you to notice producing good works in the Lord includes asking Him for the power of His grace every step of the way. Again, this is what I want you to notice. Producing good works in the Lord includes asking Him for the power of His grace every step of the way. We got the power of His grace in salvation, at salvation, which totally changed us. And then even though we possess His grace, He tells us to keep asking Him as we do the good works. Keep asking. Look at John 14, 11. Jesus said, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, in other words, if you don't believe that, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And in context, what are we talking about? Good works. The reason we've been born again. Look at John 15, verse 7. John 15, 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. There it is again. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We were born again for the purpose of good works. And he says, you ask, I'll give. This is how God is glorified. And in John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Again, we see the same principle. Why were you chosen in verse 16? Well, you're also appointed to go bear good fruit. You were born again to go bear good fruit. 
and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask in the, in the, of the Father in my name, he may give you. We are saved by grace alone. And we can now do good works by his grace alone. Once we're saved, we've been given his grace. And that is that grace is with us and empowering believers forevermore. Don't know how to fully say it, but it's a supernatural reality in the life of a believer. That's why good works are so natural from God's point of view for a believer. Because the believer has been changed and empowered by God's grace. He's like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't that occur if you have God's power? Of course it's going to occur. And by the way, keep asking, and I'll give you more. So what begins in salvation continues on as we're saved daily. Living in the gospel reality, remember? What, what he gave us at salvation, the grace he gave us, the way he took over our lives and made us new, is the same power that we live with every day, that we're empowered by every day. And that is the reality of the fullness of his grace. Taking fallen mankind and making something great of him to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's what it's all about. And what other purpose, what other reason would God make us born again and leave us here? There must be, and there certainly is, a purpose, a mission, which is show them my goodness. Show them the good works that I started, Jesus said. You're going to do even greater because I'm, I'm going home right now, but I'm leaving you behind, and you know I'm not leaving you with nothing. I'm leaving you with everything. I'm leaving you with grace. I'm leaving you with the Holy Spirit. I'm leaving you with power. I'm leaving you with the Word. And if you ask me, I'll give to you. You're left behind for good works, really. And that's the wonderful news and wonderful result of God's grace. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for revealing to us uh, the fullness of your grace in your scriptures, in your word. Help us to uh, enjoy these things and to uh, bask in them and believe them from our heart so that we can really live in your grace and live in the works you've designed and placed right before us to walk in them. Father, we ask that you bless us as we go, that you help us be humble before you, the Sovereign Lord, and help us totally rely on your grace so that we can bring you glory with our works. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.